Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. It's scan week for me, so I apologize for those of you coming in live wondering, like, where did this live video come from? Um, it's been in the works for like a month, and um, yeah, there just was a negligence on my part in making sure that it was properly scheduled ahead of time so you guys knew about it. But hi, I'm your host, Danae Peterson from the I Believe podcast, and surprise, it's Monday, and I have with us um, actually a pioneer in ocular oncology, and I'm so glad to have Dr. David Ancona from Mexico with us today. So if you guys are coming in live and you're listening to this video, which is now officially live on Facebook, my bad, now officially live on Facebook, hi guys, I'm going to recap what I just said. Um, we are doing a live video, surprise, this is Dr. David Ancona, he is from Mexico and he founded the, uh, the Eye Cancer Institute. I'm going to probably botch that. It's, yeah, the Eye Cancer Institute in Mexico. Um, they are a pioneer Mexico eye clinic for ocular oncology, specifically treating ocular melanoma. So we're thrilled to have him with us here today. Um, if you guys are coming in live, say hi, tell us where you're from. And if you guys have ever heard of Dr. Ancona, um, please you know, tell us how you heard about him. We're trying to get the word out about Mexico's eye clinic and make sure that our patients all around the world, especially in South America, um, know that they have accessible care for ocular melanoma. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Danae. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Ancona, can you just talk to me, talk to me a little bit about your history with medicine? You know, what drew you to become a doctor in the first place? Wow. So it's been a while now, <laughs> but I think that the thing that inspired me the most has to be my grandfather. He was a pretty well-known doctor in Yucatan to whoever has been ever to Cancun. It's like two or two, three hours away. And in Southern Mexico, it's a beautiful place to go on vacation. And he really inspired me about um, what is what it means, what truly means to be a doctor, which is helping out your community. And I think he um, he really got to expand his his knowledge on on how to truly help with the ailments that the community had and what was truly important for them. And accordingly, he went on to do a general practitioner's career and um and really find his way through life through that and really got to inspire me to do and perform what i truly loved which was helping patients see oh that's amazing um and dr Ancona, just a heads up you're totally fine um the internet can improve and it will it will still continue to record for us if for some reason we get like kicked off. Um, I'm going to have you just join back in and it'll be fine. Uh, but just giving you a heads up that the studio is not currently recording your video. It is still recording your audio though. So we're dealing with fun technology things. So, um, if it turns out that this isn't going to work as well live, then we can actually pull the live, um, and we can just surprise our audience later. So, um, okay. while I've got you here though, so can you talk to me, just tell me, you know, how did you get connected with ocular melanoma? 
and kind of the community of doctors. I know you've mentioned a few of kind of the rising physicians in the field that you know. Um, how did you connect with them and, and start going to school with them? Yeah, so the first time I got into contact with really getting to know ocular oncology was has to be the residency in my first years. Um, it, it really wasn't a straight um, path. It really took some bending to get me to where I am now. But I, I do recall one of the, the first patients I saw with, um, with a surface tumor. It was a, uh, he was a, a young man. And um, I think that's the, the, the moment when I, I felt really frustrated because after getting to a proper diagnosis, he was unfortunately HIV positive and he had to be, you know, had a full workup done. And um, whenever, and I trained at, at an ophthalmic uh, hospital, so we didn't have that service there, right? So I did him, he had economic problems and I did he, did give him a couple options to go visit, you know, um, an oncologist to check out if he had metastasis and whatnot. And unfortunately, I learned later that he hadn't truly gone anywhere, not even to, the, to get proper treatment for, her, for his first cancer, right? So that really struck to me because there was a huge problem that really had to be interpreted from that, which was that there wasn't really a clear path for patients with that condition. And that really got to me, that same experience happened to me once and over again through, the, through my residency. And I felt that we were not doing enough for patients that were, you know, were having this condition. So um, to this day, uh, in the same hospital, which is one of the, the the largest hospitals in ophthalmology in Mexico City, where I trained, still is uh, still doesn't have like a, a proper um, ocular oncology service that you know can probably benefit a lot of people. So um, that was my first uh, contact with ocular oncology and how it really did um, give me a purpose to what I do, and um, and after that I you know went on with life. I did retina surgery, uh, you know, the typical things when ophthalmologist would do. <laughs> and I really enjoyed out helping diabetic patients and, you know, retinal detachments and all those things. And I was ready to graduate and I really had an offer in a, in a very large hospital in Mexico City. And I really had everything going for myself, truly. And I ended up going to a conference uh, in my last month of retina fellowship. And that's where I knew Dr. Jerry and Carol Shields, uh, truly pioneers in the world of ocular oncology. I got to spoke them one-on-one, -on -one, which is pretty impossible if you've ever been to a conference in ophthalmology. They're always surrounded by people. And when I went to buy their atlases, their, their books, they were standing there. And for some reasons, they were by themselves. So I really got a, you know my 15 minutes of really chatting with them and getting to get a, a first-hand experience. And it was truly great. And that really changed with, the, with little, that little chit chat really changed my experience of what I could do, right? What was in the possibility what, of what was in my hands. And Dr. Jerry was actually the one who told me, hey, have you ever considered, um, you, know, per, you know, pursuing an, an ocular oncology career? And I was like, mm, let me think about it. You know, I <laughs> Hold on, I thought I was set. <laughs> maybe a couple of days. <laughs> Yeah, let me rearrange little things here and there. And it didn't take long. By that night, actually, I had already submitted my, my, my CV. And it really was pretty fast forward from there, you know. And I 
I thankfully got accepted to the program I wanted, which was WheelSci. And I got to, you know, experience what it was like to receive 200 new patients every, every, every week with ocular oncology conditions. I really got myself um, pretty, uh, you know, soaked with all these cases that, you know, you seldomly see when you do general ophthalmology. So it was there that I really got to prove myself um, because it was challenging that I really had to go out of my way to not only become an ophthalmologist, but also to become of a more roundup person, you know, getting in contact with the ailments, the, the emotional aspect of being an oncologist and think more of, an, of myself as a surgical oncologist, more like an ophthalmologist. Over there, I was, you know, I had great friends, my co-fellows uh, who are now at the top of their field, you know, um, on the top of these great services at like Dr. Davin at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Basil Williams at Baskin Palmer, you know, and to me, it was an experience I really had to make the most out of because I really knew where I was standing. And, and not only I'm there, but actually have, I, I, I say I have to, have to take the hard path of really um, going back, you know, to, to, to where I came from and really trying to see the perspective how it truly was once that I saw how it could be, right? No, that's, that's amazing. And it's, like you said, it's, it's pretty incredible that you were able to like have that one-on-one time at this conference, you know, I'm, I'm assuming a pretty big conference and talk to Dr. Shields and Dr. Shields. Um, so that's incredible. So you finished your, your studying, your residency, um, all of the schooling that you needed to do. You did some extra training, obviously, to get into the ocular oncology field. And then you got back to Mexico. So what kind of drove the inception of the Eye Cancer Institute that you founded? Yeah, so the Eye Cancer Institute idea was born while I was uh, while I was in the middle of fellowship. It was again something that I was, you know, driven to uh, from the situation more than you know something that really came from my mind. I was there, and friends of mine and ex professors really started texting me about these top cases they had in ocular oncology when I was still in in the U.S. Right, like, hey, can you? maybe bump this into Dr. Shields and, you know, and, and <laughs> make I, sure this is priority somewhere. Yeah. And, and I was like, you know, like these people are really asking for help because in their practices, they're suffering from dealing with these patients that are, they are not, you know, they're, they're, you know, professionals in their field, but this really goes out the way of, you know, of really truly trying to help people. So, and I was like, you know what, I cannot just be comfortable and maybe search for a position in, you know, a hospital that has everything. I have to be true to my to myself and and to the situation and really try to pursue something that is outside my what what is already there, right? Because it, it was just a proof of that. So uh, that's when I decided I wanted to go back. Actually, I you know there was a, some chats there here and there about possibly staying in the U.S. But um, and that would have been the easy path for me possibly, but. Um, I really wanted to make a change here in Mexico and, and really try to establish something that would really help out, you know, my, my peers and, and, and patients alike. So that's when Eye Cancer Institute in Mexico really flourished. And the idea of, you know, having friends who could help me out, you know, starting this from scratch and dealing with all the obstacles that I didn't even scratch the surface of what I was about to encounter in the first years I was back here, you know, trying to 
commit 100% to ocular oncologist because I have to say that this, that in spite that I still do some retina cases, I'm more than 80% of my patients are ocular oncology. So, um, and it has been quite a path. No, I believe it. So how long ago um, did, was the Eye Cancer Institute started? Like roughly how many years? So from 2018, I was okay. already here and um, it, uh, it, 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 it was gestated in 2019 uh, from one specific patient with retinoblastoma who, who needed intraarterial chemotherapy, which wasn't a, a procedure you could find here with all the secure measures. So putting a team together that right now uh, sums up to 24 specialists really started with a couple of few of friends that really wanted to do something about these patients. And um, it started in 2019 on December. And uh, from now and from there, there on it has been, you know, uh, a, a construction of many, many hands and that has landed in our own, own physical clinic that works along with big hospitals and institutions that really want to, to refer these patients to a place that would take care of them. Oh, that's amazing. I love it. I love that you guys saw like a need and, and instead of, you know, I mean, not that, not that we don't, we, we love that people go to see the shields in Pennsylvania. We love that they are renowned around the world, but it's really far. It's really far for some patients to come all the way around the world. And so like, what a gift that you were able to train with them and that you were able to learn and study alongside them and alongside so many of the other ocular oncologists who are, you know, newer in the field um, because the world does need more ocular oncologists. Like the shields are not immortal. They're not going to be here forever. And so I'm, I'm just so grateful that you were able to train with them and that they are such good teachers. Um, so you guys started this, um, I guess, really kind of officially, you know, December, 2019. So it's been, coming up on what, four years now, coming up on four years this year. And, um, so how many people, how many patients in the, um, the ocular oncology field, I'm, I'm going to lump it all in with all ocular oncology. Cause I know that, you know, eye cancer is the more common, like, um, ocular melanoma is the most common eye cancer, but it's still very rare. Um, how many, like how many patients a week would you say you probably see now kind of as you guys have built up momentum? So it has to be around um, five patients every week, every, five new patients every week, which in context, it's a lot for four years. Um, I mean, we're nowhere close to 200 patients we should receive, but obviously they have like 40 years on. So I feel pretty blessed of having, of being able to help as many. And it is not about quantity. I think it's more about the quality we give to each patient. So we work, we truly work to make things more optimal. We do receive uh, people from that come from other states within Mexico, and we have received patients as far as from Brazil, Dominican Republic, and, and places that are Central America that that, are, that might not have everything that, that that there is. So yeah, and just to touch a little bit on on what you said about Dr. Shields, they truly, you know, their legacy is gonna outlive them for sure. I think their impact has been so great. That really inspires more, a lot of people that like me that who who want to you know pursue a career in ocular oncology and I feel nothing but grateful for for both of them. I feel very truly honored to have been you know one of of their ex fellows, and it it really has opened doors for me you know and that I have their their backup of if something comes up that I feel that I'm 
that I feel I need more help that I, I have, you know, that they could help me out. So um, that, that I would have to say, you know, because none of this would be possible if they hadn't, you know, once started what right now is like the biggest um, option, the, you know, the largest cancer clinic probably in the world. And like you said, unfortunately, that's not possible for a lot of patients. If you try to figure out with the numbers we have right now, which is not the true um, percentage, but to the number of Mexican patients that they see at will side, they have to be the smallest percentage. Like most patients end up having no treatment at all prior because um, it costs. And like I do tell patients, I think oncology is more about thinking of it as a marathon, more like a hundred K, like the 10 K. So it's not about making the effort to go once and get treated. It's just what comes afterward, right? So, and it has come to the point that Dr. Shields do send me once in a while patients that were treated there for me to, you know, keep on following up them because it makes things easier and, you know, things are, and, and, and the effect is going to last in the end uh, more than, you know, getting yourself into a debt that you won't be able to pay through months and months and months of going back and forth or probably living there. So, Reality is that we have to have more more places like this close to home where we feel that um, that we are close to our friends, to our work, and to really get ourselves treated. No, that's such a good point. Um, and, I'm, and I'm so glad you guys have been able to, like, you know, continue, continue that um, camaraderie and that, you know, companionship and kind of like what you said uh, across, like, you know, your fellowship across your residency, like in your schooling, you've met so many of the people who currently work in ocular oncology. So you have connections, you talk to these people on a regular basis, like, and that's, I mean, that alone, I think just that makes for such a huge, um, a huge benefit for the patients because they're not just getting, you know, they're not just getting one doctor's opinion. They're, they're potentially getting multiple doctors, like clear up to the shields because you might be checking in and being like, I don't know what to do. Like, what's the best, what's the best approach here? What should I do? Like, do you agree? Like, and I think that's, that's what makes for the best medicine, right? It's yeah. just being able to ask those questions and, and to check in and, and, and be willing to like have your ideas contested or bettered by each other. And those different point of views, right? And that person could have read that particular article, which was in the middle of nowhere to be found and could really have the answer. And I think that collaborate collaboration, Ocular oncology is a pioneer in, in, in collaboration in ophthalmology, I think, and in many other specialties. And, and that to us, that's our normal, you know, to collaborate with a lot of, of people from our same specialty and other specialties and work, try to work together towards one goal. And what, is, what I found has been great is that I do bump in my, my peers and my teachers and, and friends, and, um, and that still it still is free of charge you know for for patients because you know as long as i feel that i'm 100 percent comfortable with what with what i'm gonna provide as a as care i think that really is the valuable part of you know being able to provide this to to many patients no that makes total sense so let's talk a little bit about the treatments that you offer at the eye cancer institute um and and do you mind just sharing like i guess specific location like of where you are in mexico like where patients who are looking for treatment in in the southern american central america mexican area um 
So I guess let's, let's talk location first and then let's talk what treatments do you guys offer? For sure. So uh, we are currently present in two cities uh, with the full range of treatment options. And they're the second and third largest cities in Mexico. So they're very accessible. We have um, international um, flights from all over. Uh, we receive, uh, you know, the, the flights, I mean, are come from everywhere. There's, um, you know, there's to Colombia, to everywhere, every every day. And I think being very connected is part of what we're truly searching for. So we are in Monterrey, Mexico, which is... Um, one hour away from the southern border of Texas. So uh, people from the south of Texas sometimes find us as an option. And the other is um, Guadalajara, Mexico, which is in the western part. And it's a beautiful city with amazing, um, you know, food, culture, art, and, and climate. Really, really the climate. And it's really close to the beach. So people who might, who might want to relax after treatment, that's, that's an option too. And I'm happy to say that we have absolutely every treatment available right now, except for pro proton beam, which as you know, is not the standard of care, but everything mm -hmm. that's the first option of treatment we do have. Um, I have to say that brachytherapy is very scarce because of what it needs, you know, to have an operating um, brachytherapy center. And that is um, on, a, on, a, on a specific options, but as you know, Melanoma and other treatments have been really favored and specifically after the pandemic and that situations were very scarce um, of radiosurgery options, which we do every single week now. So uh, aside from that, we're the only clinic that has a running IAC, intraarterial chemotherapy program for retinoblastoma uh, that really keeps on to give out the most secure treatment ever. Uh, uh, and that was thanks to a lot of, you know, legal aspects of imports of, you know, collaborations directly to Switzerland, to France, to get, you know, the best catheters at the best prices, unfortunately. And it really embarrasses me to say that, um, that unfortunately, the reality in Mexico is that you, what you see maybe at the, at the, at the pharmacy might not exactly be what you're taking. So we really truly... And we have had scandals in which they were giving other treatments that were not really, you know, uh, the ones that they were giving. So we truly take to, uh, to pride that we take a lot of security towards what uh, we are giving patients. And we we work with laboratories, you know, right from the right, right up front. You know, we don't have intermediaries for that matter. So um, and that's just to give, you know, what must be basic, which is security. And I think it's... Uh, really pivotal if we want to make this work. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned brachytherapy. And so you said that you do or you guys do not use brachytherapy in your clinic. So, so I guess I'm, I'm thinking uh, specifically for like ocular melanoma, which is obviously like that's what that's what we cover. Um, and I know you see more than just ocular melanoma patients. Yeah, so we do. Unfortunately, there's a lot of, uh, of situations we cannot control, such as imports. We have the we have the the seeds come from Germany, and as you know, there, you know, and specifically post pandemic, things have not been swiftly with with imports and exports. So um, sometimes it just it does takes a couple of weeks. Uh, fortunately, the tendency is towards treating smaller and smaller tumors with radiosurgery, which we find it's a great option, and that we have 
um, gathered a great amount of experience about you know precise fullness specifically for for tumors that are small and in difficult locations. We have treated um, tumors in the iris, in the ciliary body, but we do have brachytherapy. We actually treated, I, I myself did a surgery on the smallest child that has been treated with, uh, with brachytherapy here in Mexico, which was less than a year old. And, and you know, the team that was for a medullary epithelioma, but before that, that was, you know, the only option was enucleation. So thankfully, you know, a year and a half after, you know, everything is, the kid is actually doing great, keeping his organ. And, you know, we're working, as you know, towards, you know, improving his, his eyesight and, and dealing with glaucoma and everything that is proper of the tumor and the treatment. But, but yeah, so we do have reactive therapy. Their answer would be yes, uh, but it might not be readily available. So we, we look at other options that are more available and that are excellent. As you know, um, the efficacy of both of them are 98%, which is the same. There's no, um, yeah. there's not one above the other. And what, you know, it's um, the, act, the, the, the secondary effects are what's, uh, what makes the difference. However, as we read over and over again in scientific articles, you, the, the treatment that is readily available is the best option. And that, that as you no, know, is so true. also in the U.S. and, and Europe and everywhere. No, that's, that's such a good point is that, you know, regardless of what maybe could be the best option, if the treatment that is the most available is A and you, you know, say you wanted B, but treatment A is the only one, like then treatment A is the best one. Um, so that's so good. Um, do you also see patients, I mean, you mentioned enucleation. So do you, I mean, I just know there are far too many patients who end up, you know, with not a smaller tumor, they have a larger tumor or a tumor in a, a more difficult location to treat, and they end up kind of on the path for enucleation or, you know, needing enucleation. So do you also do those surgeries or do you have other um, surgeons that you refer to? No. So part of the 24 specialists in our institute is working together um, in the less possible surgeries possible, you know, <laughs> and, you know, making a path the shortest and the most efficacious as possible. And normally for enucleations, I do have somebody from the oculoplastics team with us just so that the rehabilitation, the cosmetic rehabilitation is in mind right from the beginning. And that really sets out the goal, you know, of, and that really helps out in minimizing uh, secondary effects that later, that possibly later will require two or three surgeries down the road. So um, working together, I think it's what um, uh, it's what what really makes us strong. And you know, and even thinking about the procedures that would come afterwards, the impact has been so that we do receive patients that were treated every somewhere else just to get you know uh, reconstructed, uh, either from heavy prosthesis or from uh, poorly performed um, enucleations or accentuations. Um, so. So we take pride in, in, in really working as a team whenever, whenever it's needed. No, I love that. That's, that's so good. Um, and I feel like that's, that's really like, I feel like that's, that's kind of a novel way to think about it. Like that if you're going to be enucleating someone's eye, you're going to make sure, like, even if you're the one doing the surgery that you've got oculoplastics in there to make sure that they're like all in agreement of how, how things are being done so that the patient has the best outcome moving forward. 
So what are some of the limitations that you guys face? I know that you're still um, kind of in that that younger phase of your clinic. And you mentioned a little bit of the shipping delays and kind of the, the accessibility of some of the, the tools and the medicines that you guys use. Um, but are there any other you know specific limitations you guys face at your clinic in treating patients, um, specifically with ocular melanoma or other rare conditions? Yeah, so I think the biggest or the toughest obstacle over them all is, you know, changing the paradigm of, you know, of how things used to be done and since they for some reason or worked to be able to change um, the perspectives of people that have been doing that up to now, you know? So, and there's always a resistance understandably to things that are new and maybe change, hopefully, you know, thankfully the newer generations have more that more of that in hand, but um, it, it is, you know, people that have to deal with these treatments that are a little bit subject to change in, 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 you know, in, in, you know, using this, this new, this way of, of modern ocular oncologies. So I would say the, the, the mind is the first obstacle that, that we really encountered and to have to reteach and to really construct uh, a reputation of really doing things the proper way that has been the toughest and getting, and, but you know, we're getting there. So I, I, it's not a complaint, but it's something that we do every single, every single time that we're at conferences, at talks, at, you know, podcasts like this one, and uh, to, to be able to get the word out there that we're doing this, you know, with people that are pioneers in their field. So the other, the other obstacle that we have found is the availability of you know what what it what it means to to be really an option for patients and not stand on our high ground of you know um this is what we're great and we do this and we don't help anybody because we're so expensive right so the second obstacle is really bringing those prices fairly down you know trying to work with as many organizations as possible and trying to fetch all the opportunities like donations and stuff from from charitable organizations, um, working with what's tough, which is government, with other in, uh, private institutions, um, trying to make bonds with with all these places. Uh, so with those two, I would say that takes seventy five percent of my time uh, of what what it, what it means to 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 really build uh, an institute an institute from from scratch. No, I feel like that's that's such a good you know good thing to point out is you know the the, like you said, changing the paradigm and changing the mindset of the people who have, have been practicing before and who kind of thought this was the only thing they could do to now showing them there's possibility and there's all of these opportunities of what we can do. We just need to be willing to, to try it and we have to learn and, and, you know, continue to grow. But then also dealing with, you know, the politics of of running the, the whole institute and the government and any kind of logistical things you come up against. And I just have to say that it's doing so in a very respectful manner because truly is that these people have been pioneers with what they had. And I have learned a lot from people that do maybe a little bit outdated ocular oncology and because they ha- they are very grounded to what really is what helps people. Right. So, so I have to relearn um, what is the real world 
in the scenario and in the context that I'm really um, practicing medicine and trying to fuse with what really would work. So I have to give credit to those people that have practiced ocular oncology despite their liking and that really have, and understandably that has created some, you know, doubts on if it would be possible to, to establish this modern uh, option of treatment. So uh, I just wanted to point that out because I don't want it to be heard as, you know, the old ones. You know? But so, and, and oh no, it's, for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, it's like, it's such a tricky balance, right? Because without, without say the five, 10, 15 doctors that came before you, you wouldn't be here. Like you needed, you needed them, you know, as a, as a path to where you are now. And then, um, and I think it's, you know, it's fair to say that in the world of ocular oncology, like all of the doctors need each other, right? Like, you know, you need each other, whether you're two years into your program and just learning about ocular oncology, or you've been doing this for 40, 50 years. Um, I think there's always that, that learning and growing from each other and just in collaboration. So I just admire your, your ability and, and your, your desire to uh, collaborate in that kind of a manner. So just lastly, as we kind of close and wind up for the day, do you want to talk about like, what are some of the goals of your clinic moving forward? Um, kind of the, the big things you're excited about, the, the dreams you have for, you know, five, 10, 15 years into the future. Oh, yeah. So just to speak about a couple of them that are really um, at the upfront of what we're, we see ourselves in the next five to 10 years is just being a very patient-centered institute that really cares about human beings, you know. Um, unfortunately, I was a, I had I had experience a medicine that it's really number oriented, you know. Like you know, we have to get input output. This is like you get treated. That's it, and really doesn't give a a form just to heard what concerns the actual patient, you know, and their family. Sometimes the the least they care about is the actual cancer but more about what goes around and the problems that they even had before that really truly make the most out of their worries. So I have committed the whole team to build a practice that is patient-centered psychologically and try to break the taboo of, you know, incorporating uh, mental health into cancer, you know, because... If you have people that want to do bypass surgery, people that want to get like extreme makeovers in, in plastic surgery, go through psychological um, screening, why wouldn't an, a person that is leading with life and death and leading with sight loss that wouldn't need a hand in that manner? So mm. we, it is a great taboo and it is a great obstacle just to be sensible enough not to tell somebody because you're not telling them they're crazy, you know, and that's the first thing they yeah. think that we're really trying to help out what we think has to be the 50% of their concern. Right. And that's, well, and I think that's such an important, that's such an important aspect. Like, I mean, like you said, like it, you can't go through something like this diagnosis as a patient. I mean, speaking firsthand, like you cannot go through something like this and not have it affect you mentally and emotionally. And obviously it affects you physically because you lose some level of sight, um, whether it's small or big or all of it. Um, 
so I mean, the effects of that, I mean, I, I agree. Like why, why would, why would psychological support be something you go through for cosmetic, um, cosmetic voluntary surgery versus cancer surgeries? And how can we make, make that a focus? And, and I, I just admire you guys, um, for making that, a like foundational principle of your practice, because I think that too often it gets kind of laid aside at the, at the beginning as the practice builds, and then they come back to it and they're like, Oh wait, we forgot. We've got to like, we've got to focus on mental health. We've got to support the patients. And by then it's, it, it just becomes harder to like implement, I think in retrospect than it is to implement from the beginning. So I just, I think that's amazing that you guys are focusing there. Yes. And on that same, on that same line is about optimizing the resources because Truth is, you know, there's limitations and what we want the patient to do absolutely everything. But sometimes you get into the, the situation where you have to choose even which study to do, you know, so you really have to be very cost concerned. And the, the other way we are trying to look forward is really truly uh, looking at those treatment algorithms, but like with a real world site and really decide what is to our opinion the the best option for care and to a very customized um, national and possibly international perspective you know if if it can help other international patients that would be amazing but um we call it mexicanized you know medicine <laughs> so it's more to to nationalize it in a way that we we as we know our culture and um it's it's more about you know uh, getting what, what people really are concerned about. Often you would find that one of the questions that I ask is what is your biggest concern? You know, like not melanoma patients, you know, concern. It's what is your biggest concern? And often I found it's a different answer for everybody. You know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, I want to get better fast because I have to take care of my mother or maybe I want to do different things, you know, and, and I think it's more about listening and, and that, 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 that it to, and work towards maybe helping out them. Maybe most of the times, um, well, not most of the times, but sometimes, um, the eye cancer is, is the least of their worries. So it's, it's, it's more about thinking of us as potential patients and having our, you know, I, I recently, I talked in the beginning about my grandfather who was an excellent mm -hmm. medic, uh, doctor and he unfortunately passed away because of cancer. So that I would think that in the end, you know, I would think everything we do, we think about what if we were the patients, you know, and I wouldn't want to go through something as tough as an eye cancer by myself, you know? So I think it's very important that we, we, we truly um, land that, you know, as, as one of the goals or the central goals in our, in our institute. Oh, I love that. And I think that's so important. Um, and I just, I mean, I can already tell like that you, you have, you have the type of uh, persona, I guess, that I think most patients with this type of eye cancer would respond well to and just feel supported by. Um, so I admire that about you. Thank you so much. Um, well, if patients want to connect with you guys on social media, if they want to be able to find you, uh, find your eye clinic or for a friend who they heard maybe is dealing with ocular melanoma in their area, where can they find uh, the Eye Cancer Institute in Mexico on social media or yourself? Yeah, so we have eyecancerinstitute.com and it is replicated through all the social media. So if, if you're uh, trying to find at 
Eye Cancer Institute, you'll be able to find most of our of our social media accounts. And mine um, as as a doctor is Ancona Ocular. So that would be A-N-C-O-N-A-O-C-U-L-A-R. And that's where I, I am more in touch with, with you know, colleagues and patients that, um, that maybe some have quick questions, you know? And we ha we, I have interviewed um, patients from Turkey, patients from, you know, different, different places that have um, some type of very pinpoint concerns about, um, about care. So I, I would be happy to stay in touch with uh, whomever might need it. And um, if, you know, if we could be an option for patients that are looking for possibly less, ex less expensive, close to home options, we would be happy to help. Oh, I love that. Well, I will make sure that those are included in the show notes. And I just want to thank you again for your time today and for being here and for our live audience, anyone who is listening, if you guys have a chance, share this and uh, we will see you guys next time. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Danae. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.